This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit. In this episode, we will be exploring what it is about some podcasts that make us change how we think about things, what makes us act on those thoughts to change our behaviour, and what is it that changes how we feel about things. So joining me in conversation are Maria Kahoot and Yasmin Sakai, my regular podcast hosts. Maria Yaz, introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Maria Kahoot. I'm the features editor at Medical News Today. Yes. Yes, I'm Yasmin Sakai, the global news editor at Medical News Today. Do you know, I'm so excited to have both of you on the podcast today. This is a rare treat. Okay, let's start with what makes us change our minds. So the podcast that made me change my mind, I'll start with myself, was published in January 2022, and it was all about donating blood. And I hadn't given blood for about 20 years, having had a low iron level at one session. And I kind of just switched off from it. And that podcast made me think, Every single one of us, if we can, can't just zone out and leave blood donation to other people. We need to do this if we possibly can. And I have to say, the buzz is amazing. So here's what was going through my mind when I went for my second blood donation after my 20, 30 year gap. Mind the gap, please. I'm on my way to give blood for the second time. I restarted giving blood, having been inspired by uh, the guests we had on a podcast in January 2022, all about donating blood. And we did the podcast because there were shortages of blood in the US and across Europe at the time, partly due to the weather and COVID. Kind of excited and a bit nervous. Now, why would a doctor be? nervous giving blood this is ridiculous but being the other side of the needle feels very different Um, and it is quite a big needle but they're very experienced Um, so i have to i'm going to trust them and uh, here we go right i'm going in now i'm ridiculously nervous my heart's racing (laughs) nothing can happen it's absolutely fine just a needle Okay, just about to fill in the uh, 31 questions. They check that everything's still up to date. I'm in for screening now and we'll be doing the iron test next. And my iron test was good. It just sank right to the bottom with the blue vial. So things are moving. Okay, well, we've got the great big needle in. I'm not looking at it. <laughs> but it went in smoothly, didn't it, Joe? It did indeed. Yeah, um, yeah so I'm very pleased. Um, yeah, no bruising this time. <laughs> so, um, yeah, okay. went for the one on the inside. So it shuts off after 15 minutes, but it won't take that long, okay? Your vein's really good, you've got a good flow, so you'll be done in no time. Excellent, excellent. That's good stuff. Oh, God, I'm so pleased. So all I have to do is open and close my hands. So this time I don't need to clench my legs and my bum like I did last time to squeeze it all out. So it's all flowing well. So that should happen quite easily. It really is quite gruesome to look at. I'm going to look elsewhere. Um, I'm going to read my book now, I think. You okay? Yes, I'm fine. Seven minutes and 54 seconds. Good heavens, that was fast. I'm up there. Well done. 
Okay, I'm done. Oh, well done. How are you, how are you feeling? I'm fine, I'm fine. Oh, well done you. I'm very proud. That's it now. Now we go home. And there's me being a total wimp. <laughs> it was absolutely <laughs> terrified. No, no, it was so good. And I loved it. You took us on the journey and we could actually hear all the other sounds. I, I really enjoyed it. And I think people are going to appreciate it because I, they often see doctors and nurses as, you know, they'll never have any problem. They're not affected by the same anxieties they were affected by. But of course they are because everybody's human. So I think that was great. It was just fabulous. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that you managed to get back to donating blood. What in the podcast inspired you to face that fear that you had? Yeah, do you know what? I hadn't realised that actually it wasn't just that I'd had a low iron. It was because I was actually a bit afraid of it's quite a big needle, but it was fine. It didn't really hurt at all. Um, It was partly the blood donor and the recipient so that was Sean and Brian and they talked about the gift of life I mean who couldn't be inspired to be part of giving life but the bit that really inspired me was Dr Lasky. It's something that is is universal and we are connecting people in a way that you know most donors never meet the patients and most patients never meet their donors. And I think it's a really powerful testimony to how we are connected and how interdependent we are on one another and in a very palpable way. It's something that really chimed with my values. It's that interconnectedness of the kindness of strangers that I just wanted to be part of again. That's so amazing and that's so true. That's a prime example of how we make the world go round by helping each other and by not expecting anything in return, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's been my experience, particularly when I've travelled. Yes, coming to you, I know we can't all donate blood and we really need to validate people who are supporters for whatever reason and can't be part of this particular story. Yes. So we hear all of these inspiring stories of people going to donate for strangers and actually giving life to people. But there are people who have terrible fears of needles, they can't stand the sight of blood, or they may have medical conditions that prevent them from actually partaking in this kind gesture, this activity. So, for example, because of the long-term medication I take, I'm not eligible to donate blood. But, of course... We're always there to support other people who can and we can encourage other people who can. But you, you do feel a bit uh, low and a bit useless sometimes in those instances. Oh, um, really, that isn't the idea here. I think it is just to say there are really good reasons some people can't give blood. And I nearly fell into that category because the cutoff I found was 60 Six. So if I'd given some blood when I was still 65, I could carry on until I was 70. So actually I had an extra motivation to just get on and do it. Otherwise, I was going to lose this chance to be part of something that was going to give me an emotional buzz. Anyway, so I changed my mind. That really flipped me. So, Maria, you wrote an article back in 2019 for Medical News Today about why it's so hard to change our minds. Tell us more about that. Yes, 
there was a paper in Nature Neuroscience that was looking, uh, it was a small study, 40-something participants, and they were trying to find out exactly what you said, why it's so hard to change people's minds. And the researchers sort of found two interesting things. One thing that they talked about is that people find it easier to change their mind when they speak to somebody who they trust, who they think has authority and expertise. But at the same time, they also found that it can be naturally difficult for our brains to literally process opinions or information that doesn't confirm our pre-existing worldview or values. So there's this confirmation bias that's almost wired into our brains and we expect people to agree with us. And if they don't, if they present a different perspective, we can find it really difficult to process and incorporate that and challenge our own already established viewpoint. Do you know, that makes sense now because I was already there. I just switched off from it. And so it re-triggered and I was like, okay, yeah, I'm ready to do this again. So let's move on to acting on our intentions. Now, there's this proverb that says the road to hell is paved with good intentions, (laughs) which is kind of, we all like, tomorrow I'm going to do this. And it doesn't happen. So however strong our intentions are, we don't always act on them. So let's first hear Maria's audio diary about her behaviour change. Can you hear that? Little bit of nice olive oil, extra virgin sizzling in the pan. So I'm just cooking a little bit of fish. Um, And while that's happening, I'm going to also put the kettle on and get that going because I quite fancy some green tea. So ever since um, the In Conversation podcast in January this year, where we spoke about depression and the importance of diet in alleviating symptoms of depression, I just thought I could make some changes to my own diet to improve my mental health. And something that I've done is I've tried to include a lot more antioxidant-containing foods and omega-3-containing foods, including fish. So I've discovered that I've tried a lot of different types of fish that I hadn't tried before, and I've discovered a new favourite fish, and that would be ray. Yeah, that was nice. I I really enjoyed that. (laughs) So ridiculous, so ridiculous. (laughs) That was a nice little insight into your daily life. Garlic and fish. (laughs) Yes, I love garlic. I love garlic. I adore garlic. That's what we heard sizzling, wasn't it? And then the fish (laughs) went in. Yes, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, what was it in the diet and mental health podcast that made you change your mind, Maria? Yes. So for a, a bit of context, that was back in January 2023. And we did this podcast with Dr. Najaf Amin and Rachel Kelly about uh, the impact of 
our diets on mental health and depression specifically. And as I was listening to their conversation and and participating a little bit, it made me really reflect on my own relationship with food and also the links between my relationship with food throughout time um, and my mental health. So... uh, I am going to um, confess that when I was younger, I struggled with disordered eating quite a bit. And it took a very long time for me to manage to overcome that really, really negative pattern in my relationship with food. But I also realized, reflecting on it, listening to uh, Najaf, listening to Rachel back in January that that happened for me at a time when my mental health was also not doing great. So there was this correlation between how I wasn't looking after myself through diet and how my mental health was doing. And I'm sure it was bi-directional that the, the two were influencing each other. But that also made me realize that in more recent months also, um, when I'm stressed, I'm in a fairly high stress job, not nearly as high stress as a doctor, as a nurse, as somebody who is in a care role, but it's still quite high stress with a lot of deadlines and stuff like that. Um, so whenever, whenever I face a lot of stress, I tend to neglect my diet as well. And that almost exacerbates how bad I feel. That's what they talked about, isn't it? It's, and then you kind of want the comfort foods. Yes, exactly, exactly. But that's not always good for you, as we've learned, because it does things to your gut. It does things to the kinds of chemicals coursing through our bodies and our brains. So, yeah, I decided to try and make an effort and follow a better diet and maybe more of a Mediterranean style diet, which we've seen is great for everything, including mental health, but also just brain health in general and memory. So yes, I've been incorporating more fish, which I love anyway, and more different types of fish and shellfish as well, because variety is very important, as um, Rachel was mentioning in the podcast. She mentioned beans. She was saying, I I remember that. (laughs) I've just started eating black beans. I really like them. Oh, yeah, there's so many types. So many types. Yeah. Oh, what do you eat? Yes, you've changed your diet as well, haven't you? Yeah, well, I'm uh, eating a lot more black lentils, beluga lentils. Oh, yeah, they're nice. Mung beans, uh, I've been eating a lot more. Um, Uh, How do you cook the mung beans? I I do like a salad. Lots of extra virgin olive oil, parsley, dill, cucumbers, tomatoes, sumac, a bit of pomegranate molasses, very Mediterranean. Oh, wow. With cooked mung beans? Yes. God, I only thought they went in dull. Okay, let's just listen to this bit. So go to the supermarket and if you always buy one kind of bean, buy six kinds of beans. If you always buy one kind of flour, buy six kinds of flour. If you always buy one kind of oil to cook with, buy six kinds of oil. I mean, flax oil is a good one for omega-3s if you don't like oily fish, which not everybody would like. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank Maria for being so open and vulnerable. Um, I think openly talking about these issues is really important and it's really easy to relate. So it's interesting to hear your kind of take on this, but shall we unpick a bit more about what it was about this that meant that you could do this change to your diet, to your lifestyle? Well, I think it's kind of what Hillary was saying before, 
it was going back to foods that I already enjoyed and just incorporating more of those more often and also diversifying those. So I think that's what made it easy that I already enjoyed those ingredients or stuff like green tea. I love green tea, but sometimes I just couldn't be bothered to make a cup of tea, you know, that sort of thing, a little bit of laziness. But I had so much green tea lying around in my cupboards in different types as well, like smoky green tea, hojicha, which is my favorite, green tea and pomegranate, you know, different varieties. So yeah, just playing with taste as well, bringing an element of playfulness into it and of experimentation. You gave us a recipe earlier, didn't you, basically? Yes, but it's mm-hmm. that element of experimenting with food and coming up with new recipes or finding new recipes online that you can try out with all of these lovely foods that's really helping. And it's not boring. It's not an annoying sort of mundane ritual it's experimenting yes making it into something creative which I really love yeah I think it's like a shift in mindset when you kind of fix your relationship with food and start seeing it as a source of fuel of nourishment I think then it's easier to play with it it's easier to experiment and actually enjoy it instead of looking at it as a source of fear or uh, anxiety Exactly. And not to be cliche, but it's also an act of self-love and self-care. Mm-hmm. Because I, another thing that I've realized is I typically find it much easier and I'm much more motivated to cook for other people, right? Because it's an mm-hmm. act of showing love to those other people, to friends, to my partner, to my family members. But then why wouldn't I pour the same sort of energy and care into the food that I cook for myself? So what advice would you have for me? Because actually cooking for me isn't an act of self-love for me or anyone else because it's just so stressful in the kitchen and there's lots of clashing and bang I I cooked a meal the other day and my partner David came in and went and it was there was a lot of mess on the floor I don't know how he got there I mean it was like anyway but it wasn't it's really hard so you can already cook I can tell just listening to your audio diary you know you know there was a calmness there I would probably say to do it in small steps, to try and find what it is that you enjoy eating and what it is that you enjoy about cooking. Even if you typically find cooking to be a chore, there must be something. Someone, for instance, someone that I know used to tell me that they really enjoy the act of, this might sound a bit funny, but they really enjoyed slicing onions and garlic because they found it relaxing, almost like meditative, like an act of mindfulness. After a hard day's work, they would enjoy just, you know, slicing those veggies, which... I I don't enjoy doing that so much, but I think for everybody, there's a bit of something in cooking that they enjoy and maybe focusing on those aspects. But again, just taking it easy, taking it step by step, starting with maybe recipes that are easier to achieve, that are lower effort, but still very rich in those healthy ingredients. I remember them saying, think about the happy foods, and it was green leafy veg, so I can cook cabbage. <laughs> yeah, I can Excellent. do that one. I can do it. It's like you just chop it up and then like two, two minutes later and then olive oil and lemon and pepper. I can do that. And then the next one was oily fish. So I can put mm-hmm. things in a pan. 
And then the final thing was chocolate, dark chocolate. And actually, (laughs) I have done a mindfulness on dark chocolate. So just one cube and just taking it bit by bit, slowly thinking about. Mm. I just actually you can really, really enjoy one cube of chocolate. I never thought I could get there, but... I have. Oh, yeah, especially like with the higher cocoa content, like 85 to 90 percent. Oh, it's so good. I love it. Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. And uh, you've hit the nail on the head, really. There have been quite a few studies in recent years about mindful eating and how that helps in lots of ways. But also, you know, how important it is because we're so used to living this really fast paced life. We eat our meals. I, I know I sometimes do that just super fast in 10 minutes sometimes standing not good don't do that don't do that so it can really make a difference I think both in terms of our enjoyment of food and in terms of our mental health to just slowly enjoy every single bite of a meal and it's scientifically proven. Fantastic. That's actually quite a good link because we're moving on now to changing how we feel. And Yaz, you've talked before about your chronic pain. You mentioned earlier about being on medication and uh, you talked about it on the podcast we did with Tony Yaks and Joel Nelson about chronic pain mechanisms. And it was that one that changed how you feel about your pain and how you manage it. So just before we listen to your audio diary, can you remind listeners about the nature of your pain? Yes. So my pain started in an acute state. It started off as a sports injury from volleyball and then it transitioned into a chronic state where it kind of um, spread throughout the body and I had multiple pain points in different joints in the body. So then I was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis. I've been on multiple medications for a few years now. It's all under control. I live a pretty normal life, but every now and then you'll have episodes and then you'll be like, ah, is it all coming back? (laughs) So now we'll play a little clip of a particularly painful day I was experiencing. That was last night, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it was last night. Yeah, but... I decided to record it because I changed the way I react to pain or how I feel about pain after we did the podcast on chronic pain. So hopefully our listeners will be able to see what changed in my behaviour. I thought it was a good time for a check-in as I'm in quite a lot of pain at the moment. I've got a lot of both shooting and gnawing pain in my right wrist and the very bottom joint of my right index finger, um, which the culprit, I think, is beach volleyball a few weeks back, which was super fun. But I definitely pushed myself too hard. I also have some rib pain at the moment, where the joints kind of meet the breastbone. Um, It kind of feels a bit sore, but um, there is this kind of annoying aching nature to it as well which it's either arthritic in nature so it could be costochondritis or it could be muscle pain from the gym it's really hard to tell at the moment especially when you've got multiple areas of pain and the pain is kind of similar so 
I normally would have popped in a painkiller, uh, maybe a paracetamol or codeine if it gets worse. But ever since we did the podcast on chronic pain, I've been more mindful of the way I treat and approach pain. So currently I'd probably say I'm at a pain level of 6.57. And I've stopped taking painkillers until they're at least an 8. And instead I've been using more mindful strategies. So a lot of breath work, um, a lot of meditation, a lot of grounding, a lot of distracting myself from the pain state I'm in. But yeah, knowing about how the kind of um, the spinal cord amplifies pain, especially after periods of stress, which I've been experiencing and how it turns the volume level up on your pain. It's been really fascinating. So I've been trying to be more cognizant of that fact. But yeah, hopefully, hopefully these strategies can help others as well. Because they do help, they do help. Um, But of course, when it gets too bad, sometimes you do have to resort to medication. And that's my check-in. Oh yeah, like cringed. <laughs> so no, hard. no, that was that was so vulnerable and so beautiful, and it, I felt your pain as you were describing. Me too. It brought tears to my eyes listening to it. Oh man, I'm so sorry. And you have to work when you're in that much pain, and you do that frequently. That is, you are great. You are a very very strong person. I want to ask about being strong because all the behavioural change models that there's they've got various names like theory of planned behaviour, the cycle of change, health belief model, and there's a more recent behaviour change wheel that's got twenty three elements to it. All of them include three elements. There's something about whether we think the behaviour is going to be either enjoyable or beneficial, and we've worked through through that with my blood donation and Maria's uh, lovely fish cooking. Whether we have social support to do it, and then the final bit is whether or not we believe we can do it. And for the change you made, Yaz, mm-hmm. can you tell us more about that last element? How did you believe that you could hold on to a pain level of 8 out of 10 without taking a painkiller? I think it's experience and you build up your resilience, which helps. But also I think I've had friends and family see me in those states and they've encouraged me to kind of ride it out or distract me from the pain and then I did actually do like a DNA-based nutrition overhaul, which kind of, I think I saw a lot of improvement in my pain profile and I didn't have as many pain episodes. So after that, I think I just had this self-belief, this internal motivation, I think, that kind of pushed me to kind of be a bit more resilient and kind of grit through it a bit more. And just, I think, being mindful Just meditation, as cheesy as it sounds, it really does help. Just kind of emptying out all your thoughts or just going to therapy. I will always advocate for that. So that's where the social emotional support also comes in. Was there a particular part of the podcast that chimed with you? 
Yes, I think when uh, Joel, he talked about pain being noise, that part really resonated with me, just having that constantly in the background. And then when Tony, he talked about how the central nervous system was implicated in pain transitioning from an acute to a chronic state. We started out this conversation by saying pain is in the brain and your perceptions of what the world is about you impact very directly and in a way that is actually experimentally definable, changes the way your brain reacts. So when I say pain is in the brain, I am not saying it's any less real in any way, shape, or form. It's a real thing. You know, the moment ago when I said we now teach medical students that, you know, just because you don't see the primary diagnosis as being a swollen joint doesn't mean the patient doesn't have something really going on. So there's a danger when we talk about that sort of, oh, pains in the brain. So what's your problem? Because that's not the intent at all. The intent is to actually validate and bring into reality the kinds of issues that occur when you discover that stress and so forth has changed this pain condition. And mindfulness, in a way, can help the individual respond to the nature of the afferent traffic that's coming up the spinal cord. It's not something you could become mindful enough to say have surgery done, but it might in fact take the edge off of some of the things that are driving this exaggerated response. Maria, do you have any questions? My question would be, what tips do you have for people who might struggle to build that resilience that you have built in time? Because I think it can be very difficult you know, even with mindfulness and meditation, when you're faced with that amount of pain, to power through it and not reach out for a painkiller immediately. Hmm, yeah. I don't know. I think you, you just get sick and tired at one point of relying on something, <laughs> which is probably not the healthiest mindset to have. But I don't know, that, that kind of really motivates you to be like, no, I'm going to be in tune with my body. I'm going to listen to my body. I'm going to try to figure out what's going on, what's underlying all of this pain. And then that kind of spurs you to take these little steps. So, for example, I notice whenever my mental health suffers or whenever my gut health suffers, my pain gets worse. So I started out with small changes to my diet, for example. I did like a little cleanse and then I did lots of kind of probiotics, which kind of built my gut health up. And then I didn't experience pain for quite a long time. And then I also took steps to kind of better my mental health through psychotherapy, through mindfulness, meditation, and just speaking more openly about it with friends and acquaintances and all of that. So I think that put me in the right direction. And then I, I think it's an inward thing. You just get sick and tired of this. And I think it's maybe it's more of a personality trait. I think that's the point where either you lose complete hope and you end up in this pit of despair or it inspires you. It gives you a sense of hope. It pushes you. It motivates you to kind of find other solutions. And I think that's more of a personality thing or a mindset shift, I would say. So I think everybody kind of has that turning point or breaking point. So it's more of a timing thing. Is your concern about taking the painkillers? Because there must be people listening thinking, oh, just take some painkillers, that's just too much to bear. Is it the concern that 
you think that'll make it worse? Well, yes. I've also, we've had many recent studies. I think that one was in science translational medicine, and that was on how taking NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen or naproxen and steroids could kind of dampen the auto-inflammatory process that happens after an injury and kind of prevent your body from actually processing it properly, which could make experiencing chronic pain more likely. And then we've had other studies that kind of people that take it for joint pains, for example, taking ibuprofen, and it might not deal with the synovitis that happens in the joints, for example, so it may lead to more problems later on. So it's more of a, oh, I don't want to make things worse in the long run and if I can actually lessen my pain or deal with it without actually having to rely on medication I would much rather do that. I think sometimes you need your body to be able to kind of go through the process and sit with that discomfort a little before actually kind of applying that band-aid solution on it and instead kind of going to the root of the problem. May I also ask, since I have both of you here and one of you has got lived experience of chronic pain and one of you is a doctor, isn't there also a possibility that somebody with chronic pain, because they have chronic pain, the pain is so frequent, Mm -hmm. you know, the more that you take these over-the-counter painkillers, the less effective they are. And so you want to take them even more to overcompensate. Is that correct? Or is that a misguided notion that I have? From a scientific medical perspective, I'm not sure. But I think from a psychological perspective, speaking with lived experience, it does. And I think when you take painkillers for kind of lesser pains, And then when something worse happens, you're a bit like, oh, I need more. I need more. And then you kind of rely on it. And then, of course, if you take pain medication, opioids, of course, then there's also physical dependence that comes with it. So that's a bit tricky territory. But this doesn't happen with over-the-counter medication, of course. I mean, it's really a lot of what Tony Yaks was saying, that you have central pain. You have pain is in the brain and it's real. It's painful and difficult. And so, of course, you want to take a painkiller. And so... You know, I think that's why I'm so fascinated by what you've managed to do, Yaz, to kind of go, right, I am not. There's this kind of iron grit now, isn't it? I am not giving into this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's a bit, it's discipline, it's willpower, it's perseverance. And uh, I think like I always initiate things and I can never finish things. So I'm always like quick to start, but like making something into a habit, it takes active commitment to something and it takes active steps every day. So this wasn't something that happened overnight. Like sometimes I did cave in, but the more you try, the more you kind of go with this with grit, you kind of do persevere. Do you know what that reminds me of our recent podcast with Angela Chow and Tom Barber? And I remember Angela Chow saying just be have grace with yourself it took her four years to reverse her pre-diabetes and it was just that sense of take your time don't beat yourself up you may have failures but just be kind to yourself while having that iron grit I think that's very important. And when we had that podcast on diet and mental health back in January, that's a point that Rachel Kelly made as well, That and Dr. Najaf Amin as well, that it's not about never sleeping up or feeling guilty about having a very sugary cake one day, you know. We need to 
allow ourselves to be human and give ourselves some understanding and cut ourselves a little bit of slack sometimes. Otherwise, it may be even more difficult, I think, to keep up the good work and the self-discipline. Yes, and Maria, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, being so open, sharing all your knowledge with us today. And let's just go forward with what we've learned today, which is about, you know, small steps, self-compassion, making things easy, letting them fit into our values. And so that's the thing that I take away from that, that this is complex and change and, and Medical News Today podcasts are about helping people have the information but also having the inspiration to change yeah so i think inspiration is a really important point here i think we've been fed information that either we didn't know or information that kind of changed our current worldviews, and that kind of spurred us to take an action so we we committed to something we took actual action to change our daily habits and then of course with renewed commitment to these things we incorporate them into our daily lives and then they become habits exactly um yeah i also just want to thank both of you so much for sharing your experience and how you managed to make the changes that you wanted to make and i also just want to say my hope with the in conversation podcast is that with every episode somebody takes something from these podcasts no matter how small and that it helps them even in in a small way to make healthier choices and to improve their lives on some level as long as we achieve that i think we've achieved our biggest goal maria and yasmin thank you very much thank you thank you and thank you for listening you can read more about how my podcast changed me on our website that's medicalnewstoday.com we'll be back next month talking about inflammatory bowel disease and please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode again I'm Dr. Hilary Geit, and this is a High Vis Radio production for Medical News Today.